Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Later on, we'll be uh, breaking down all the scoring in that uh, USA-Iran World Cup match. And I'll tell you the real reason why they're playing soccer, too. Uh, well, who's, Isn't it about the who, love of the game? Why? Who's playing soccer? Oh, why the Americans are playing soccer. Uh-huh. Why is that? No, this was a tease for later. Or are we going to do this story now? Uh, there's no story if there's a one-sentence answer that we can move on, quickly no, move on from. They're doing it for the ladies. We've seen several teams taking a stand on the field for human rights. Does Team USA have a plan to do the same? We support women's rights. And what we're doing as a team is... is um, supporting that while also trying to prepare for the biggest game that the squad has has had to date. So they're just thinking about the ladies the whole time while they're playing soccer, you know, because they're worried about our rights. It shows. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, yeah, so w- it's such a wonderful accomplishment. They joined the ranks of powerhouses like Senegal in the round of 16. So we'll look forward to those matches. Well, yeah, we played the Netherlands on Saturday. I'm sure you're going to be watching. The uh, larger point here, and that's actually a modestly appropriate segue, is uh, a conversation today uh, from a number of different angles and a number of different uh, frameworks about um, liberty versus tyranny. So to some extent, it's playing out on these uh, on the soccer field in Qatar. Um, but it's playing out everywhere. And the juxtaposition of the debates, controversies occurring in the West with the protests that are occurring in places like Iran, in places like China, uh, provide a um, nice backdrop to have an important conversation about uh, whether or not a free people want to live in a free society and whether or not a free people will rally to the defense of other people striving to be free. Had uh, a bit of this discussion yesterday, but Let's have more of it. Let's start with Twitter. By the way, just as a, an aside almost, now that Elon Musk uh, owns Twitter and he's reinstating accounts as sort of telegraphed and he is enduring the hatred of the left, are people who left Twitter when Trump was banned, oh. are they returning to Twitter? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I know a lot of our listeners are on Twitter, and I know some of them also left because they communicated as such, and I even at the time opened a Parler account, and I know some That's people had moved to, moved to Parler. But, uh, Did I you wonder ever use if, your Parler account, by the way? I wonder if people have come back at all. be curious to hear if you have. Well, yeah, because you and I, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know, I wasn't with you, but I, I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up and had a thousand less followers because people are just dropping by the thousands from Twitter when tr- when Trump got removed. 
And I even thought about leaving Twitter too, but we need, I think we need it for work and to communicate with more of our listeners. So I, I kept it, but, and I did get a parlor account too, but did you ever use yours? Yeah. I mean, I, I posted some things on parlor, but I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I can't juggle 15 much, social right. media platforms. So, um, Twitter is where I'm at it's a little bit, Facebook, a little bit, Instagram, mostly just Twitter. And, uh, so Elon Musk has tweeted in uh, response to this, uh, veiled threat by apple to remove twitter from the app store their app store uh that that this is a battle for the future of civilization if free speech is lost in america tyranny is all that lies ahead ron desantis florida governor ron desantis uh picked up that call to discuss the future of civilization yesterday very concerning and then when you also hear reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store because Elon Musk is actually opening it up for free speech and is restoring a lot of accounts that were uh, unfairly and illegitimately suspended for putting out accurate information about COVID. That's like one of the main things that's being reinstated. So many things these experts were wrong at, and you had people on Twitter that were calling that out. And Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And, and, and Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula, and so he's uh, providing free speech. And so if Apple responds to that, uh, by nuking them from from the app store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake, and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from from the United States Congress. And so, uh, don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand, and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. Uh, I, I, there's a couple of things there. One is the uh, relationship between Apple and the Chinese Communist government. Uh, two is the corporate power of Apple and whether removing Twitter from their App Store warrants congressional action. Before we get to that, just on COVID, because one other thing Elon Musk is delivering on is producing reports about Twitter's conduct over the last several years, the previous regime, um, in the interest of transparency. Well, yeah, and our good friend Emma Woodhouse, a.k.a. Jessica Hackett, she was banned from Twitter under this COVID-19 misleading information policy. Right, and so Musk tweeted out uh, just the other day that Twitter files on free speech suppression soon to be published on Twitter itself. The public deserves to know what really happened. Uh, so here's somebody that doesn't just parrot the transparency line. He's actually producing. And so we find out in some of the first uh, report that's uh, re been released. Since January of 2020, more than 11 million accounts were challenged for violating the COVID-19 information policy. 11,230 accounts were suspended. 97,674 pieces of content were removed. Um. You know, so, you know, again, the Covidians and remember the Twitter, at least pre Musk, was dominated by the left. So you can imagine all these Covidian minders oh. looking to have accounts suspended of anybody who 
was not an enthusiastic supporter of all things Fauci. And so they did. Mm -hmm. And this morning I'm driving, you know, I listen to CBS on the way here. And the the big warning this morning, if you get COVID information on Twitter, it may be misleading. That was the headline. And then it went on to say, you know, because the COVID information, misinformation policy is gone now. So be careful. I mean, give me a break. The the left loves this. Like, oh, now, you know, because they're afraid people are not going to get vaccinated. People didn't need Twitter to decide whether or not they're going to get vaccinated. People have a brain. They read up on things. Uh, okay. I mean, so this is a part of the larger discussion right. about protecting people from themselves and this paternalistic attitude of the COVIDian left and just the left in general. And frankly, even some on the paternal, some on the center right that have paternalist streaks that are disquieting. The idea that um, that if you are presented with any information that is of of dubious legitimacy, you're immediately going to adopt it. You're 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 completely susceptible to anything that is presented to you and you will automatically adopt as fact anything that someone sends you or anything that you read online or see in a tweet. Um, And so you need minders over the top, uh, minders of these platforms, minders at the state level, minders in the state to come in and protect your your delicate sensibilities and your, you know, credulous rube like nature from being persuaded as to believing things that are not true. That that's the whole attitude that underlies it. It's pretty simple. You can't be trusted to process information and separate fact from fiction. You can't be trusted to consume a lot of information or to consume and it's always going to be selected information. You're never going to consume it all on any particular topic and make a informed judgment based on you know the merits of what you've consumed we just wonder, we don't trust you and i wonder who the person was who was sitting there deciding what was or was not medical misinformation i think that person was a doctor was no it was a person sin, who had an agenda per, per person per so sin. you're talking about thousands team. of uh content minders vince and geneva you're on chicago's morning answer Hey guys, yeah, I'm a. I got a pretty big following on Twitter, but uh, I went from before Elon maybe a thousand new followers a month to this month. I've already gained over 4,500 followers, and they're all new people. Hey, back on Twitter, back on Twitter. You know, since oh. Elon took over, so um, definitely seeing an uptick. Um, and my impressions, I've gone from like eight to eight million a month to about 12 million impressions this month on Twitter. So it's definitely changed. It's it's kind of we've taken over the whole marketplace if you if you're on there a lot. Well, thanks for the call, Vince. Right, and there's a lot of uh, now on the left that are uh, fleeing because they can't handle a public domain that includes opinions that are not theirs. Um, so it's a uh, it is very telling. It's a wonderful illustration of the cultural divide on this thing called liberty of speech of thought um, on the role that the state has to play here. Yes. Because this is a bit more complicated, I think. A venture capitalist, uh, David Sachs, was on Tucker Carlson show yesterday. Sachs was he's a very successful guy. He was on the ground floor of PayPal and other uh, tech startups. 
Uh, and he had this to say about uh, about Apple and uh, the prospect of essentially removing Twitter from their app store, deplatforming Twitter, if you will. You know, what Apple is doing in China is not that different from what Apple is doing in the U.S. They are willing to engage in censorship on a global basis on behalf of their true paymasters. And by paymasters, I don't mean consumers. Apple has them completely locked up. What I mean is the party in power, whether that's in Beijing or Washington. This is the quid pro quo that uh, MAGA Democrats have made. Of course, by MAGA Democrats, I'm referring to Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Uh, they have yes. the most lucrative monopolies in history and want to continue minting money undisturbed. And in exchange for that, they will donate lavishly to the Democratic Party. And they're willing to kneecap their political opponents with censorship if that's what the party in power requires. I love that. MAGA Democrats, Microsoft, Apple, Google and Amazon. Perfect. MAGA Democrats. Um, and uh, he goes on to talk about what the public square has become under these big tech oligarchs. The problem is that the town square has been privatized. Uh, when content got digitized, it got centralized in the hands of a few big tech companies. And the problem here, though, is that these big tech companies aren't just acting on their own. They're acting, uh, you know, at the behest of, uh, of, of the government in Washington. And, you know, uh, whether it's the Biden administration or various senators on the Judiciary Committee, they have suggested these companies that their monopolies might be broken up if they don't take down more content. And so big tech has gotten the message. They want their monopolies to continue undisturbed. They want to keep minting money. And so they are responding by practicing the censorship. So that's the next part of this discussion, what Apple is doing in concert with the Chinese communist government. The more you listen, the more, you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're talking about uh, Twitter, Apple, Big Tech, big the big state, both uh, ours as well as China's. And you're on Android, so if they pull Twitter... You're fine. But if Apple pulls Twitter, I am running to buy an Android, and I will not look back. Or uh, as Elon Musk said, maybe he'll create his own phone. Oh, that's right. That would be brilliant. Sell it at half the price, but same quality. You've heard, uh, you heard Ron DeSantis uh, suggest that if that were to occur, if Apple were to remove Twitter from its app store, that congressional action would be appropriate. You have uh, two Republicans, Mike Gallagher 
from Wisconsin in the House, Marco Rubio from Florida in the Senate, who have proposed banning TikTok, Mike Gallagher calling it digital fentanyl. You have uh, even tech entrepreneurs like David Sachs, who was on with Tucker yesterday, saying the public square has essentially become privatized and a big tech is now serving in the role or serving as a henchman for the state, doing what the state can't when it comes to censoring Americans' free speech. Yeah, Governor Kristi Noem, South Dakota, she signed an executive order that bans the Chinese, you know, social media platform TikTok from government agencies, employees, and contractors using state devices. Do you want to get and uh, and by the way, Tucker in in his conversation with David Sachs also sort of took as a given that these big tech companies are monopoly, monopolies that should be regulated, and we've had this back and forth about. Uh, Section 527 of the Comms Act and whether or not that should be revisited, that would leave big tech companies with more legal liability for the content that's posted on their platform by users. So a lot of push in the direction of state regulation or even outright bans. Or, you know, bans on the one side, uh, prohibitions against banning on the other. So on the one side, I want you to ban Trump. On the other side, I don't want you to ban Trump or anyone. Right. And so I, I, I need to be convinced a little bit on this. I'm, I'm uh, not an early adopter of the calls for state action when it comes to big tech. When, uh, and, and that includes banning TikTok in this country. You know, you ban TikTok, you also get rid of libs of TikTok. And how useful has that account been to spread the word uh, about who the left really is just by presenting the left as they present themselves on TikTok? We'd never know about drag queen brunches or bingo. We'll talk uh, to Gordon. Well, I don't know about we never know, but I mean, it's certainly enriched the knowledge, hasn't it? Uh, We'll talk to Gordon Chang later in the show about this, but and I'm not being naive here because I think there are some legitimate concerns about Chinese data collection, Chinese communist data collection on Americans and the uh, national security threat that uh, tools like TikTok present. But but I mean, I, I'm more concerned about the Chinese government knowing my Internet consumption habits than my own government. What's the Chinese government going to do to me? As John Q. Public over here. Well, not to so you, convi- but like state agencies. That's why Christy Noem yanked it for employees and contractors using state devices. I mean, do you think okay. that they would spy on okay. South Dakota? I mean, that might. Uh, That's fine. possible. But um, so, but p- persuade me about this, about the, the state action. The state uh, shall compel Apple to keep Twitter on its in its app store. By the way, it's interesting. So much of the flight from Twitter of the, from the left comes with Trump's reinstatement, and yet Trump Social is in the Apple app store, oh, and, and nobody's <laughs> even calling for that to be removed. He's just flying under the radar. You notice Trump isn't calling for state action recently <laughs> because, hey, Trump's uh, Truth Social is in the app store, and if uh, Twitter is removed from the app store, that's all the better for Truth Social. 
Yeah, uh, he's anyway. been reinstated, and he still hasn't tweeted. Well, right, because he's Cause got he his own got deal, his, right. which also speaks to the question of monopoly. You, Jelani Cobb, writing in The New Yorker, this phony, high-minded piece about why he's leaving Twitter, talks about other social media sites uh, that he is trying out, like Mastodon, and there are others. Um, some of them, you know, starting to get pretty significant use. So the monopoly argument, hmm, I'm not so sure. Now, to be clear, Jelani Cobb's a rather entertaining piece because of the just, I mean, it's just so cloying. But, uh, but ultimately, you read uh, 500 words of his histrionics about Elon Musk and 500 words worth of his histrionics and Elon Musk and Twitter and so on and so forth. And it all boils down to what? It all boils down to why he's leaving? His reinstatement of Donald Trump's account made remaining completely untenable. <laughs> so, I mean, the high-minded New York uh, commentator, uh, Jelani Cobb, is no different than your daffy, uh, you know, awful housewife in Hinsdale at the end of the day. That's Three, what's so yeah. funny about it. 312-642-5600 is our turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line. Six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I, I'm see. I'm less worried about the Chinese communists vis a vis me and my internet consumption. I'm I'm more worried about our reaction to the Chinese communists as a country. We talked about this yesterday with the unbelievably tepid response from John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council, uh, to. The protests that are happening against the regime in China, the white paper protests. And, you know, what's your reaction? And the reaction is we believe in people's right to protest. Hardly a ringing endorsement of the fight against these uh, totalitarian technocrats in China. And KJP was asked about it in Air Force One yesterday. Oh the quadruple threat, Karine Jean-Pierre, spokesman for the big guy, Mr. 10%. She was asked by a reporter about the administration's position with respect to these protests, with respect to the repressive Chinese communists. You know, the communists the, the, in China, the ones that are operating concentration camps that are persecuting Uyghur Muslims, those communists. What do you think? Has the White House communicated to Beijing any possible consequences of its crackdown on protesters? And also, is the White House considering saying something or using existing U.S. government tools to help Chinese citizens get around Internet blocks? So I, I don't have anything to preview for you at this time on, um, uh, on you know, anything uh, connected to the social media, your first, your second question. Uh, I don't have any calls to preview to you, for you at this time. Look, we've been very clear uh, that people have a right to peacefully protest without fear. How's that for moral clarity? Are you inspired? What in God's name was that answer, that non-answer answer. And uh, something else, and this was discussed by Sachs and Tucker on his show too, that you know the the that Apple is running interference for the Chinese communists, not allowing uh, protesters to share videos, communicate via via their uh, via uh, the platforms there right i mean the people you know they're they're cracking down they're grabbing people's phones deleting things 
but they want to make sure. But, you know, the only person, the only adult in this country that's putting Chinese Communist Party on notice is Governor DeSantis. Uh, I just want to make a comment about what we've been seeing going on in China. Uh, This zero COVID policy uh, is draconian. uh, It violates people's liberties and it is completely unscientific. And the people of China are right to be able to speak out and protest against what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. This CCP has a maniacal desire to exert total control over its population. Zero COVID is really just the pretext for them to do what they want to do anyways. And that is not a model uh, that can work over the long term. The people in China are finally speaking out uh, against it. And and I just think we need these draconian uh, COVID policies to go to the ash heap of history where they belong. Well, well, yeah. Okay. So now what about Apple's role in limiting the capabilities of airdrop uh, among the protesters on behalf of the Chinese communist government? I mean, yes, you should speak in full throated defense and promotion of the protesters. We should be relentlessly talking about Jimmy Lai sitting in a prison in Hong Kong and probably will remain there for the rest of his life. Uh What do you want to do about companies in this country like Apple that are conspiring with Chinese communists, the Chinese communist government, that are doing the bidding of the Chinese communist government? They're not the only ones. Google's done it, too, previously. And we saw we've seen some of this anytime there's been unrest in some of these totalitarian uh, regimes that happen to be important markets for big tech companies. So what do you want to do about it? If you want regulation, mm-hmm. if you want state intervention, or I mean, or if you argue that these are state actors and so you'd be intervening, the state interview, intervening effectively with the state, but if you want to treat these private actors as state enterprises and uh, hold them to the strictures of the Constitution, then make the case. Because I just willy-nilly slapping a regulation or a ban on this or a prohibition against doing that on companies, you know, um, that can turn on you quickly. You allow uh, constitutional rights to be eroded, and that puts you down a path. You expand the power of the state. That puts you on a path, too, and actually with the same destination of constitutional rights being eroded. So, you know, uh, we have the Supreme Court seemingly as a bit of a backstop here when it comes to our constitutional rights, generally speaking. But the composition of the Supreme Court won't necessarily always be what it is today. And if the Jelani Cobbs of the world controlled that last backstop or people similarly of a similar mindset were dominant in that last institution that's not controlled by the new Marxists, then what do you think happens? What's getting banned? What's getting prohibited? What's getting what and who are getting regulated? 
You know, I mean, it's just you have to understand the precedent you're setting. And if you're essentially facilitating their long term ends because of your short term interests, what are their long term ends? Basically, some form of soft totalitarianism, maybe not so soft. And so the knee jerk reaction to use the state. Use the state as a sword, not a shield, really, like some Republicans are proposing. There are implications to that, and I don't know that they've been completely thought through by people calling immediately for congressional action uh, based on the prospect of Twitter being removed from the Apple App Store or even Apple running interference for the Chinese communists. Mark and Rochelle, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, I'm having a little bit of a tug of war on this subject as far as regulating media. Uh, when I hear how they, they, we believe that they've manipulated elections, I start to lean toward wanting to regulate that. But then I think about when, a, when Congress starts to regulate stuff, how they screw it up so bad. I think, no way. I'm not giving them that power. And just like you start hitting on is, um, I don't think we want to live in that world where if somebody wanted to start their own media platform, they could, couldn't because it'd be, you know, based on some regulations instead of on their free speech. Yeah, and, it would almost you almost get to a point of state sanction. Right. You know, this is how you this is how you let the government's uh, nose in the tent, if you will. Right. And I just the things I've seen from Congress, they just they mess up stuff. Everything they touch is just destroyed. So I, I just, no way do I want to give him that power. Thanks for the call, Mark. Uh, Mike Plano. Hey, Dan. Yeah, I agree with you. I've never gotten a clear explanation on why TikTok should be banned either, not from Trump, not from any of these other politicians. And, um, you know, and, and most of these other politicians, you're talking about your old guard establishment types, too, that uh, have a mindset geared towards the national security state and, Unfortunately, Trump does, too, in a way, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that he's from an older generation, but um, you always hear this from these guys, all, you know, everything's a crisis or an epidemic or uh, the, another buzzword they like to use I can't say anymore is national security. Everything's now national security, but they can never define what exactly that is, and um, another thing, too, with uh, TikTok, if the Chinese want to use a stupid act, and I don't like TikTok. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. But they want to use that to study the behaviors of weird liberals. Let them have at it. How is that a threat to our lives at all? I mean, it, cultures have been studying each other throughout human history. I mean, it, it's it's not a threat. If you want to take on China, do so economically, especially since they're a slave labor camp for these mega corporations. Thanks for the call, Well, Mike. TikTok is also, you know, the dumbing down of kids. And TikTok in China, so is, so they're is, limited— so is, Right, but they're limited to forty minutes. That's the max, and then it, well, and then it, well, it well, shuts well, down. Well, you can you can limit your kid to forty minutes if you want here. Yeah, or is that the state's job? Do that. Well, is that the state's job? Dumbing down of kids? No, I understand TikTok in China is different than TikTok oh, in yeah. the U.S. This they is what explain. we talked about for that sixty minutes expose a couple of weeks ago. Right. So that's good to know. So it sounds like that's an adult responsibility here. A, a responsible, yeah. free people. If they want to remain free or do you want to outsource parenting to the state because the state is happy to take over that responsibility. And that should scare the hell out of you. 
Oh, and in terms of dumbing down, what do the government schools do in this country? Are they? Are are they? Do, do, would you describe them as intellectually rigorous? No, I would not. They have an agenda. So the state is seems to me in the business of dumbing down. Um, and it's been that way long before TikTok arrived on your smartphones. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's the free speech show today. Oh. Seems appropriate given the nature of our program and yes. that it's a radio program on top of it, the public airwaves. The uh, and the conversation we've been having, the debate, pick your poison, big government or big tech? Or are the two interchangeable? Who controls which? To which do you want to ascribe more power? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, it's complicated to unpack. It's a lot more complicated than some politicians and pundits are suggesting. Uh, let me give you an example at the local level. Let's talk Illinois here. Uh, a uh, socialist state legislator from Skokie named Denise Wang Stoneback. Excuse me? I think it's Denise, but I'm going to go with the Key and Peel pronunciation. Oh, the Denise. Denise Wang Denise. Stoneback is her name. She's introduced the Dan Prof Prevention Act. What? That's not, ex- that's not exactly what it's called, but it might as well be called that. To criminalize <gasps> certain kinds of political speech in the context of campaigns. The Truth and Politics Act. Of course it's the Truth and Politics Act. Could it be... Any more, you know, on the nose Orwellian. Oh, Dan. Here's what the act says. Creates prohibitions against false or misleading statements to affect a vote. (laughs) Better cancel the elections. Yeah, I mean, all the it doesn't matter if you're Republican, independent, Democrat. It it goes. okay. go on. Unlawful attempts to affect the outcome of a campaign. (laughs) Distribution of materials intending to mislead people on a candidate's incumbency status and libel and defamation in political advertising. 
if a person violates any of the provisions, they can be enjoined civilly, and the violations of the provisions is a Class A misdemeanor. <gasps> you go to State Board of Elections jail. The Truth and Politics Act, otherwise known as the Dan Proft Act. The Dan Proft Prevention Act. Yeah, excuse uh, me. Th- I mean, I, not to be, you know, so uh, you know, lacking in humility here, but... Well, no, because but, I mean, if this your is... campaign ads weren't so effective... They would never. She would never have authored that legislation. Come on. What? Yeah. What was the hue and cry? And 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 I got and you know, uh, Mr. Steele dossier. Mark Elias, the campaign counsel for Pritzker, sending cease and desist letters to the networks for just about every ad that I ran, even though there was no underlying falsehoods in no, any of those ads they weren't it was all yeah. it, it was it was all either cited or actual news footage, footage or actual video footage of somebody being assaulted and battered for example um but yeah the, the, but what do they want and this is this goes back to our conversation you really want to expand the purview of the state when it comes to regulating content on social media platforms or anywhere do you really want to do that? Because where you're going to get to is the Truth in Politics Act. Now, I don't think this uh, is, I mean, I, to the extent this went anywhere, I can't believe it would hold up in courts of law. But, you know, the courts of law here are mainly controlled by the left, including the state Supreme Court. So you never know. You may have to, if this actually were to move, you might have to go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and hope they take it. But but setting that aside, the mindset that produces something like this. They're the Edgar County, Edgar County watchdogs are on the job. Good, good to organic investigative reporters, the Edgar County watchdogs. And just to ask the questions that should be popping in your mind as you're hearing the language of this legislation. Who defines what's a false or misleading statement? Right. Why do we need another law providing for civil action and defamation cases? There already is a law. Why would anyone want to criminalize free speech? Who defines what unfriendly or bitter words are? That's also included in the unfriendly or bitter, quote, unquote. Why do we need to place political actors and candidates in an elevated place compared to the average citizen? To attack those, both criminally and civilly, who speak out against them or a political question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all good questions. All good questions. But, yeah, the who defines, well, who do you think? You know. You know what the answer is. Well, they'll give you some sort of, you know, uh, cliche. The people well, yeah, <laughs> will the define people it. No, yes. de- the lawmakers will define it. Of course. It's legislation. If they see a political ad targeting a Democrat that they want in office and they think it might be defaming or misleading in any way, boom, you can get hit. And you'll get I, and what you'll get from them, I assume, is something akin to uh, Potter Stewart's view on pornography. I know it when I see oh, it. Oh, right. That's right. That's what you're going to have from, from D-Nice Wang Stoneback. I know misleading information when I see it. You know how I know it's misleading? It's attacking me or one of my friends. Or Governor Pritzker. I'm sure he would persuaded her to do this not even not even attacking challenging oh i don't think but but, but, why pritzker they they, they, as as if these people need any persuasion this is 
This is their attitude. They come to the table with this attitude. House Bill 5850. Wow. Criminalizing certain speech directed at political campaigns. These are your suburban priorities. Wow. Uh, Skokie, Niles, Morton Grove. D-Nice, Wang, Stoneback. People should call her 847-673-1131. And and tell me again about, you know, especially people who live in these districts and elect these ghastly uh, legislators like Miss Stoneback. Uh, then then you're you're going to pretend that you're appalled at uh, what Chinese communists do to their people. You you can't believe uh, the oppression in other parts of the world and the restrictions on people's right to speak their minds. I mean, you, you are elevating. You know, a Praetorian guard for gulags in this state. But since it's a Democrat-run House and Senate, do you think it's going to pass? Tony in Downers Grove, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. You know, Dan, I was just thinking that the irony is is that we we empower both, both tech companies and politicians to take away the power from us. And and we allow it to happen. Now, no question, we, we allow it. We're we're cheerleading it. We're active participants. Well, I don't know how you stop it unless you speak out. And and, and yeah, maybe well, I'm at fault too. We don't speak out enough. We don't. Well, do right. Do. And and uh, they're and <laughs> they're going to cut you off at the pass if Denise uh, D Nice uh, Stoneback, whatever her name is, if uh, she gets her way. Yeah, exactly. People have to stand up and speak out. Well, before you do that, uh, let me introduce this law that makes doing exactly that a misdemeanor. Her her district office, it's in Skokie, but call her, 847-673-1131. What's the point? Well, call her. Call her and say what? You voted for her. People that didn't vote for her. Even if you voted for it, come on, that's ludicrous. This is the whole point. Well, this yeah, just- nothing's ludicrous. This is the whole point. That's not happening. Nothing's happening. And I can't bring myself to confront legislators like this and legislation like this because everybody who I wanted in charge is in charge. The majority will has been served in this state. So what is the majority going to do? Pretend they're offended? Say, I didn't mean to take it that far? You did. This, I mean, they do. They did. That's, they just that, took that, it that, too far. They no, just, no, 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 no. Criminalizing free speech during elections. This is what this is what we don't appreciate. This is not an overreach to them. This is not something that's accidental. Oh, it wasn't well considered. This is what they want to do. This is what they want to see done. This is what they actually support. Oh, boy, wait till people hear about this. What are you talking about? This is a reflection of the majority will in Illinois, in the suburbs, in Morton Grove and Niles and Skokie. Not only do I not want to confront or hear accidentally hear viewpoints 
that are not my own. I want those viewpoints silenced. Period. Let's dispense with the elections and the pretense altogether because the only purpose of these elections is to stop threats to our democracy. So what better way to stop the threat to democracy than just eliminate competition altogether? Our people are in charge. Let's suspend it all. And then we don't have to worry about any more threats to our democracy. (laughs) Threats to our democracy, which would be, yeah, right. A democracy the way that, uh, you know, uh, the People's Republic of China is a republic. I mean, somebody texted in, isn't it an American tradition? Because most political campaigns, about half of them are false or misleading. Which, I don't know if it's half of political campaigns are false or misleading, but... Yes, there are misleading political ads out there. You think we can't be do that anymore? You think so? So then Pritzker would be charged with a misdemeanor for running uh, ads backed by tens of millions of dollars, saying he balanced the budget. That's misleading. That's a lie. It's just yeah, it's just false. False. It's fake money. Um, I mean, uh, that uh, is it misleading if you say we've had. Um, whatever, six uh, bond rating improvements since I've been governor, but we started at 50 and we're still at 50. We still have the worst bond rating in the country. Is it a little misleading? Because, you know, if you say we've had all these improvements, people think like we're moving somewhere. We're not moving forward, though. We're, we're still last in the nation by a margin when it comes to our creditworthiness. So if you don't include that contextual point, just say, for example, just to use that example. Yeah. Is that misleading? Is that telling the whole we, story? We should slap the governor with a misdemeanor right there. What wow. about when you call me a racist because... Um, yeah, because... Because why? Telling the truth. Because you don't like uh, the way a... The mugshots a, that you a, used. A graphics package yeah. presented you in video form. Um, I mean, uh, does that, I mean, a public figure, I, I understand New York Times, we saw them standard and so forth. I'm not suggesting that it's actionable nor that it should be, but I'm saying under the Truth and Politics Act, do I have a uh, defamation claim? Well, first of all, this would be endless, endless complaints to the State Board of Elections and endless litigation, which I guess is part in service of their the trial lawyer friends that are one of the larger financiers of the Democrat socialists. So I get that their interests are served to some extent, and it also would have a chilling effect. So their interests would be served there, and it would and it would have a chilling effect, particularly on candidates with uh, fewer resources. So it would have a chilling effect on ordinary people getting involved in politics, which is also good for them since they dominate all of the political, civic, and cultural institutions, particularly in Chicago and Illinois. So, I mean, I get I get how their interests are served by silencing dissent. Sure. Dave in Orlando, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, listen, I just wanted to say that the, the only real way to come back People like this de-nice Wang Stone Crotch is to simply move out. You just got to go. These people are just beyond reconcile. Uh, I just took my, you know, my large gross income, my two college-age kids, 
and I got out of Illinois. Illinois doesn't deserve our their future. Are your kids going to be living with you call, then Dave. in Florida? Oh, he's gone. Uh, the uh, plague of women vipers in Lagrange. Can I say that? Is that defamatory under the yeah. Truth and Politics Act? The plague of women vipers in Lagrange will sponsor a presentation on the Safety Act next month. Oh, really? They're going to have uh, one speaker, of course, um, and one point of view. Wait, Cam Buckner? No, a policy director from the Chicago Appleseed Center, one of these you know phony nonprofits that funded by the left. Um, I mean these these they, you know they these uh these awfuls affluent white leftist females that dominate the suburbs people like that uh, D Nice Yang in uh, Skokie dominate you know they they present Lee oh the League of Women Voters and it's and it's you know it's like it's like delicious dish. You know, they're like in sweaters and they're not arts and crafts and cookies. And we're going to have, you know, a nice little gathering where we share ideas and talk about policy and we're substantive people. And they're exactly what I said they are. They're vipers. And not just in terms of their scaliness, but also their poison for these communities. But that's what we've embraced. That's what we've embraced. This is what the people want. Denise, D-Nice Yang is giving the people what they want. Silence dissent. Kevin, Austin, Texas. Hi, I want to reply to the guy from Downers Grove. There was a, a map that I saw about the two six, 2016 election. People who pulled a uh, Republican primary ballot but, but then turned around and voted for Hillary Clinton. Those are the people you gotta you gotta impact and flip back. They didn't like Trump's mean tweets, so they're voting for these extreme, you know, awfuls. Uh, or it's the awfuls that are voting for the, for the uh, Democrats, and those are the people you gotta flip back. I don't think they, you know, it, I don't know. That was the main point I was trying to make. No, so I disagree. I disagree. Uh, the awfuls are not salvageable. And there is it is it is a it is a waste of time and energy if some of them, uh, you know, hire a a deep programmer like that uh, mom whose daughter went to Mount Holyoke. We were talking about the other day. Then fine. That's on them. Well, they come around. But but forget it. Forget it. It is a it is a fool's errand. Kevin, who are the ones that flipped, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, who, who would have pulled a Republican ballot and then would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Is it just the awfuls or, or the other ones you can get back? Well, I mean, I'm sure there's some male impersonators there, too. But I, I that, that is they, they are so far down the rabbit hole. They are so far gone that there's no because hope. that that's where that's where Pacquiao lost was in, in DuPage. And I think they're. What six congressional races that run through DePage County? Uh, well, here's what has here's what has to happen. Uh, yeah. Here's to me the path of least resistance and most upside, and I've said this many times. It is going after people who are like-minded but not affiliated with the Republican Party. 
um, particularly uh, first and second generation Latinos, um, younger black men, like under 50. Sure. That's that's where the Republican Party is going to uh, uh, Asian families that, you know, uh, are focused on education and being industrious in life in general. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and by the way, this includes first and second generation when I'm talking about Asian, when I'm talking about uh, African immigrants and sure, so right. forth. So, I mean, th- th- that is where the, bud get, the bread gets buttered if it's going to get buttered at all for the Republican Party in states that are trending deep blue like Illinois. If you don't get to those constituencies, you're not going to win by uh, flipping these just ghastly— ghastly pro-abort automatons in places well, like Naperville and Hinsdale. It's not going to happen. I think the phrase I want to impart onto you, it's it's their due date abortionists. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, but, but you, so, so you are you are not going, I mean, you are not going to get, and frankly, frankly, somebody that is a proponent of infanticide, it not not only is it impossible to have a reasonable conversation with them, I'm actually not that interested. I wonder how many of them actually are aware of it, though. I mean, I wonder how many 20-year-old or 30 and younger women are actually aware of it. They're not. Yeah, you, I, I had a conversation with a, a young lady, and I said, you know, you can get an abortion up until your due date in Illinois, and taxpayers pay for it? She's like, no, that's not true. No. It's just the first 16 weeks. No, it's not. I think those are the ones you can flip back. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. That's somebody else's job because I'm not talking to him. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Uh, Michael in the south side. Morning, Dan. Morning, Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, You know, Dan, you should really make the lefties in uh, Chicago really mad by submitting all your newspapers to the Lizigo Awards that are awarded. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah. Show up with a whole entourage. Roll up there like, uh, yeah, uh, that'd be great. Thanks for the call, Michael. Uh, yeah, that'd be a uh-huh. roll up there like. Uh, and the winner like, goes to like Eminem with my Slim Shady crowd, <laughs> all my all my all my honky friends rolling up into the Lissiger Awards. Yeah, and may, and maybe too. I mean, can I can I get like a one one? Can I get an Emmy? Can I get an Emmy for reporting too? I mean, like video. If we did like video, video reports. reports. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, get one of those those. Uh, those Emmys, that so look awfully nice stop. on a young man's mantle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very good. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Free Speech Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Tackling it uh, through a number of different lenses with a number of different case studies. Here's another, and this flows right from the conversation we were having right before Mike Scott's newscast, which is these terrible, uh, in some respects, uh, overeducated suburban women, the uh, what pro-abort, due date pro-aborts, as uh, Kevin from Austin, Texas calls them, the awfuls. Affluent white leftist females. It's a good acronym. And I'll tell you, before we get to the case of Robin Keller, uh, conservative women really are the backbone of the conservative movement. They do most of the work, if truth be told. At least that's been my experience. And 
also observationally my conclusion. Um, but they're going to have to like get a lot more aggressive. Step up the game. Going to have to like get a lot more aggressive. Going to have to. Aggressive in what way? Aggressive in um, engaging in their community in a way that the left does. For some reason, it seems to me that um, uh, status and acceptance is really important to women. Um, I think it's important to most people, but I think it's a little bit more pronounced with women. And I've had this conversation with female conservatives before that, you know, you guys need to get together and be a shame posse the same way the left does to you in places like the North Shore or the the leafy western burbs. And we are getting together Thursday, December 8th. There you go. At Bishop's Hill Winery in Joliet. Jeannie Eyes, Stephanie Trussell, they'll be... A number of women there. It's presented by Range at 355, but please come. Um, there's limited number of tickets, so get your tickets today at 560theanswer.com slash uncorked. Again, it's an evening of fine wine, unfiltered conversation. Uh, mostly ladies are invited to join us, and it's an important event as we prepare for 2023. So everyone who attends will enjoy wine, appetizers, desserts, and valet parking, and you and Sean are going to be valet parking. Uh, and... And and also uh, stop, stop uh, consorting with leftist men. We always do this the other way. Like I talk about guys, how could you go out with a, a woman who's uh, some pro-abort leftist? I couldn't. I wouldn't. Um, that goes in the other direction too. I mean, let let the the shrill harridans with the p hats have all the male impersonators. Let's make it clear that I. No chance. No chance. There's got to be consequences. Uh, as we say all the time when it comes to so many aspects of this, the left always imposes consequences, and conservatives rarely do. True. Robin Keller. Yeah, what's up with this? 44-year career as a partner, and, and ultimately a partner, at a global law firm. She is the former head of U.S. business restructuring and insolvency at Hogan Levels. Okay. It's a big job. Good for her. She writes in the Wall Street Journal. After the Supreme Court issued its Dobbs decision overturning Roe in June, global law firm Hogan Levels organized an online conference call for female employees. As a retired equity partner still actively serving clients, I was invited to participate in what was billed as a what? Say it with me. Safe space oh, for women at the firm to discuss the decision. All those delicate corporate lawyers. Um, it might have been a safe space for some, but it wasn't safe for me. Everyone else who spoke on the call was unanimous in her anger and outrage about Dobbs. I spoke up to offer a different view. I noted that many jurists and commentators believed Roe had been wrongly decided. I said that the court was right to remand the issue to the states. I added that I thought abortion rights advocates had brought much of the pushback against Roe on themselves by pushing for extreme policies. I referred to numerous reports of disproportionately high rates of abortion in the black community, which some have called a form of genocide. I said I thought this was tragic. And then what do you think happened? Please don't tell me she got fired. The outrage, was, the outrage was immediate. The next speaker called me a racist and what? demanded I leave the meeting. What? Other participants said they lost their ability to breathe. 
Oh, kick him. Out of hearing my comments. <laughs> yeah. Fainting couches. Quickly. Mm. Uh, after more of the same, I hung up. Someone then made a formal complaint to the firm. Later that day, Hogan Lovell suspended my contracts, cut off my contact with clients, removed me from email and document systems, and emailed all U.S. personnel saying that the, a forum participant had made anti-black comments and was suspended pending an investigation. What? Is there something we didn't hear during that meeting? She didn't make three weeks later, she filed a, a complaint in response and so on. Uh, three weeks later, I received a letter stating that the firm had concluded that my reference to comments labeling black abortion rates genocide was a violation of the anti-harassment policy. Never mind that this view has been expressed by numerous mainstream commentators, black and white, including in these pages. Yeah, including like Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., but okay, never mind. My complaint was dismissed, my, her complaint. My contracts with the firm were terminated and other firms, wary of publicity, blackballed me, all after an unblemished 44-year career. She concludes, if this could happen to me, anyone who expresses a disfavored opinion, even on a matter of law, can expect the same treatment. Immediate cancellation without concern for client interests, due process, or fairness. So that's a corporate law firm, global in scope. And this is how they treat a 44-year uh, attorney who was, an, who was an equity partner, was the head of uh, an important business unit in their firm. So this is the larger culture. It's not just about big tech and Twitter and Apple and China and whose accounts get suspended. It's it, 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 you know, there. This is reinforcing the larger culture is reinforcing what you're seeing at the state level, whether it's by the state or whether it's by arguably uh, those actors that are serving the state, like big tech companies. And you think, I mean, again, the mantra, and you think it can happen to you or someone you care about. How do you think that? You just hope your number doesn't come up. And that's where you want to leave this country. That's where you want to watch it go, and that's where you want to leave it. What, did, uh, did I hear much uh, hue and cry over the codification of Obergfell, the vote yesterday in the Senate? Hmm. With uh, 12... Ignorant Republicans folding in with the new Marxists? No. Mm -mm. I mean, some some people made an argument, like Mike Lee from Utah. There's a few. There's a few Mohicans left. And what's coming before the high court? Here's another case. Religious liberty. Oh, yeah. You just, I mean, you, you just had... Uh, Twelve Republicans sign on to the sign on with the new Marxists to further the end of religious liberty in this country. Well, they, and they claim they're protecting religious liberty in this. Country. I understand what uh, they claim. They also claim they're protecting democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they claim a lot of things that turn out not to be true. That turn out to actually be the opposite of the truth. So they'd and, be in trouble in Illinois in the Truth and Politics Act. Yeah. Right. And so, so, uh, I mean, again, you, you don't have a free society 
without free and fair elections and religious liberty, freedom of conscience. You don't have peaceful pluralism, and you're not going to. You're going to have an overarching state, and if you think it's overarching now, you haven't seen anything yet. Uh, here's an important case, and think of as I give you the facts in the case that's going to be adjudicated by the Supreme Court, oral arguments next week. Think about how this case would likely go if it was 6-3 the other way on the court. Lori Smith is an artist who runs her own design studio, 303 Creative. She specializes in graphic and website design and loves to visually convey messages in every site she creates. This is, uh, by the way, the summary from the Alliance, uh, from, uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom, which has taken Lori's case, representing her. Lori left the corporate design world to start her own small business in 2012 so she could use her skills to promote causes consistent with her beliefs and close to her heart, such as supporting children with disabilities, the beauty of marriage, overseas missions, animal shelters, and veterans. She was excited to expand her portfolio to create websites that celebrate marriage between a man and a woman, but Colorado made it clear she's not welcome in that space. I'm sure she's been talking to Jack Phillips over at Masterpiece Cake Shop about Colorado. A Colorado law is censoring what Lori wants to say, requiring her to create designs that violate her beliefs about marriage. Lori enjoys working with people from all walks of life, but like most artists, can't promote every message. The decisions about which projects to design are based on what message she's being asked to express, not who requests it. After realizing that Colorado was censoring her, and saying Colorado used the same law to punish Jack Phillips, right. Lori challenged the law to protect her freedom and her art studio. And in July of last year, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit ruled against her, holding Colorado can force her to create websites promoting messages that contradict her beliefs about marriage. She's now appealed, or she did appeal to the Supreme Court, and they granted cert in February of this year, oral arguments next week. Compelled to produce messages at odds with your beliefs. That's what they attempted to do to Jack Phillips. They're still attempting to do eight years into it, even after a Supreme Court victory. And if you thought the that the Supreme Court weighing in on Jack Phillips would have chastened right, that's what these new Marxists in Colorado, then you'd obviously be wrong. They're still pursuing Jack Phillips and they're pursuing others who would act in furtherance of their beliefs in contravention of the beliefs of people who sit on these uh, thought police boards like the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado. That's where it's at. And uh, one-fourth of the Republican caucus in the Senate just voted against Lori Smith and Jack Phillips and religious liberty. Okay. John in Naperville. Yeah, where is the pushback on a lot of civil lawsuits against these people that are wrongly accused? Why aren't they suing for millions and billions of dollars against these agencies and people that are doing this to these people? Why are they just laying down? I don't get that. Well, I mean, thanks for the call, John. I mean, you know, every uh, instance is uh, fact-specific. The wherewithal of the person who's been wronged, the um, uh, whether it is a matter where they have uh, legal recourse. 
But yeah, but I mean, your larger point about the lack of pushback. Yeah, that's the key one. And it's also so is Robin Keller. Is she going to be a cause celeb of of the right of conservatives, of people who believe in living in a free society, even if you're not if you even if you don't describe yourself as conservative? People who believe in living in a free society, people who believe in open and robust debate, people who can experience a viewpoint that contradicts their own and not lose the ability to breathe. So um, hyperbole, get a grip. I mean, she had a 40 year career. Robin, so restructuring attorney, uh, attorney and lost it all because of how she feels about abortion. So uh, Robin Keller, I'm sure, because she was a successful attorney, I'm sure she's got, you know, the wherewithal to live a quiet life. Good for her for not being beat up in a back alley and writing this op-ed in The Wall Street Journal to alert people to what happened and what it means about what it signals about what's happening writ large. Well, her LinkedIn profile says hashtag open to work. So she's looking actively for a job. Well, she probably just wants to work, probably doesn't need to work. But regardless, that's not that, the, the point is the point is. Where are the Robin Keller rallies going to be held? Where are the Lori Smith rallies going to be held? Other than uh, nonprofits that provide some representation, some aid and comfort to people like Jack Phillips, like Alliance for Defending Freedom. Where are we who say we're free people? Where are we to make cause celebs of these individual cases to illustrate what's happening to people who are paying, passing attention at best to what's happening to our country. Can you think of a, I mean, the, the, the cause celebs on the conservative side, uh, can you think of a compelling one of late? I mean, that, that really rose to the level of sort of, consistent national prominence where people were going to bat and making a thing out of their plight. It didn't really happen for Jack Phillips. It happened in some quarters. We spent too much time, I don't know, with these like silly pundits with their conventional wisdom pablum on, and on cable channels and If you don't stand up for Robin Keller, if you don't stand up for Lori Smith, if you don't stand up for Jack Phillips, then don't expect this to end well for you. Or you just fold. You just fold up your tent and you roll in with the other side, which is what a lot of people have done, hoping that they'll come for you last. Frank in Arlington Heights. Yeah, uh, good morning. We're still at that point in our country right now where we're willing to just tolerate the abuses of the government. We're, I mean, that, that's, you know, our revolution, at some point we got to the point where it was a revolution. We're still at that point where we're willing to tolerate it. We're not going to have the rallies for Lori Smith and Robin Keller because things aren't bad enough yet. I guess. The economy is still generally okay. I mean, it's inflation, but, I mean, you know, you still have jobs for people mostly. I mean, people are still comfortable. So we're at that point. We, we are not at the point where uh, people are going to rise up. We're not. Uh, yeah, and, clearly. 
But but I mean, but, but here's the thing. It, it, forget like the, the mass uprising. I'm not talking about, you know, a million people on, uh, you know, at Daily Plaza. I'm just talking about like even, you know, histories always change, good or bad, by the committed few. There are committed few. And we're, you know, we, me, myself included, we're not doing a good enough job. Let's be a little bit uh, self-critical here. We are not doing a good enough job. Uh, we, are we radio talk show hosts and, and bloggers and authors that, are, that believe in peaceful pluralism, that believe in free minds and free markets. We are not doing enough. And that calls for some examination by all of us. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, the mealy-mouthed responses from the Biden administration on China's, the Chinese communists, starting with President Xi, continue. The unwillingness to provide full-throated support for the white paper protesters chanting freedom continues. Here's KJP, Karina Jean-Pierre, spokesman for the big guy, Mr. 10%, on Air Force One yesterday. Has the White House communicated to Beijing any possible consequences of its crackdown on protesters? And also, is the White House considering saying something or using existing U.S. government tools to help Chinese citizens get around Internet blocks? So I, I don't have anything to preview for you at this time on, um, uh, on you know, anything uh, connected to the social media, your first, your second question. Uh, I don't have any calls to preview to you, for you at this time. Look, we've been very clear uh, that people have a right to peacefully protest without fear. Wow. On the social media piece, uh, you should just call Tim Cook over at Apple. Yeah. He'll uh, he'll explain that part to you. But but again, to me, uh, worse than John Kirby, worse than KJP, was Tony Fauci the other day on Jake Tapper's program on CNN, responding the to right? the COVID zero policies in coming out of Beijing, and subjugating the residents of Shanghai, most notably, his couching these totalitarian moves by Xi in, you know, through, through the uh, public health imperatives of COVID. Well, when you want to shut down uh, in order to interrupt immediately a process that's going on, like the spread of infection, there should be a purpose to it. Like you want to make sure you get enough ventilators or enough PPE or you want to get your population vaccinated. The comment that I made about their severe uh, um, actions that they've taken is that you have to have an end game. What's the purpose? If the purpose is let's get all the people vaccinated, particularly the elderly, then okay for a temporary period of time to do that. But they have very, very strict type of a lockdown. They're locking people in their homes, which is really, they can't even 
go out and, from what I hear, shop or walk a dog or something like that, that's going to create a lot of pushback on the part of the population if there's no underlying purpose of what you want to do. So uh, just so we understand, um, it's okay to weld people in their homes so long as you're trying to get everybody vaccinated or getting their 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 uh, updated jab. That's the Fauci position. This is why you don't allow uh, narrow caste bureaucrats like Tony Fauci to be making public policy writ large because he doesn't understand she's she's endgame. But a lot of other people do including Holman Jenkins, who writes in the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Xi has always known what he's doing. His purpose in zero COVID was to delay China's COVID reckoning until he could complete his dismantling of the only true modernizing constitutional reform of the post-Mao era, the now defunct term limit placed on the top leader, meant to prevent China from seeking back into a one-person dictatorship cult. That's by the boards as he's in his third term. Jenkins continued, everyone has kept saying China's zero COVID policy is unsustainable as if Mr. Xi didn't know it. He knew it. He wanted to lock in his dictatorial dominance before his rise could be threatened by the COVID explosion. He knew his country would have to endure sooner or later. That's what Fauci and the West doesn't understand. And frankly, you look at what's happening in China and you hear Fauci talking about people can't leave their homes and go shopping and so forth. And you have half of America saying, Oh, really? We Why don't that. you tell us more about that? We lived through that, too. And waited in lines to get into a grocery store, sometimes only finding half the stuff you need is there. It's incredible. For more on this uh, free speech, free people Wednesday, we're pleased to be joined by Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and The Great U.S.-China Tech War. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang, C-H-A-N-G, Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. Gordon Chang, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan and Amy. Does uh, Holman Jenkins have it about sussed out in terms of what President Xi's play here has been with COVID-0? Sure. Uh, Xi Jinping is trying to control the Chinese population. And, you know, we can see this in these enormous quarantine camps they are now building for a quarter of a million people in Guangzhou. Guangzhou is the site of the continuing protests um, against COVID lockdowns and against the Communist Party and Xi Jinping himself. So we are seeing this struggle between people who demand liberty and freedom and a totalitarian regime. And we don't know how this is going to end up, but I believe the people are going to win. Really? What, what do you mean the people are going to win? What does that look like? That looks like the end of communist rule. Uh, really? What? This is, you know, fascinating in that there was these most recent round of protests started on Friday because of the fire in the Rumchi on Thursday. And it took them exactly like 12 hours for protesters to go from talking about COVID lockdowns to the fundamental root of the problem, which is the Communist Party. This is significant because there were months of protests in 1989 and then Virtually nobody talked about getting rid of the Communist Party. All they wanted to do was to have the party remove a hardliner, who was Premier Li Pong, and also to sort of open up a little bit. So there was no questioning of communist rule. But now there is. And the reason is that the Communist Party has lost all goodwill in society. And that means, although Xi Jinping may be able to intimidate, coerce, and imprison people now, and he's very good at that, Um, These protests are not going to go away. 
they can go quiet for months or even years, but they will come back. And the people, I believe, will eventually get rid of the Communist Party. We saw this happen in 1949. They got rid of the Nationalists. This time they're going to get rid of the Nationalist successor, which are the Communists. Well, and what are, what's happening on the streets of China? Are you know police officers taking people's cell phones, deleting their Twitter accounts, or do you know any more information on that? Yes, police, uh, for instance, in Shanghai, um, and I'm sure elsewhere, are going around and at random checking people's phones, looking for banned apps like Telegram, which is used to communicate. Um, and also, uh, they are going into apartment buildings, rounding up people. Um, I'm sure that uh, some of the protesters um, are no longer living. And this is going to be a long-term struggle because Beijing is very good at coercion. Um, But the problem is they're so good at it, they then think they can do whatever they want. They push, they go too far, and the people are now pushing back. And I think that essentially the Communist Party has realized it no longer has hearts and minds. It can't get them back short of maybe starting a war with somebody. Um, But short of that, they realize that... uh, they have got to uh, use force rather than persuasion. What's your reaction to um, Apple's involvement with the Chinese communists and like disabling that airdrop app so protesters are struggle to communicate with one another or upload videos and so forth? Uh, uh, wh- how should we view Tim Cook and Apple in this? Yes, um, I think history will look at Tim Cook as a villain. Um, very much the way that we now look at, for instance, Tom Watson of IBM, who was selling computational equipment to the Third Reich so that they could take stock of the Jews. Um, Hmm. This is going to be Apple, and it's going to be others as well. Um, But right now, um, Tim Cook can get away with it. Um, But he has bet on China. His problem right now with China is going to be, you know, he can advertise um, iPhones on TV, But the question is whether he'll have them, because the other set of protests in China are at Zhengzhou, which is the Foxconn plant that makes more than half the world's iPhones. So um, Tim Cook bet on a stable China. China is not stable and won't be for quite some time. And Apple is going to be punished in the market, as it has been in the last week or so. Well, what's happening at those manufacturing plants? Because we're seeing videos online of half the people there saying 40% of the people have walked off the job for fear of being locked down while they were at work for months on yes. end. And how is that going to affect app, the Apple product and actually the supply, the supply chain in general? Yeah, Apple for a long time was going through happy talk about how the protests at Zhengzhou uh, were not going to affect supply. But now they've become a little bit more realistic and are talking about um, the drop in, in manufacturing, uh, which is significant. What happened at the end of last month were um, workers in the thousands, uh, and this is a plant that has 200,000 workers, but workers in the thousands fled. Um, they were climbing over the fences. They were running through the fields. Chinese people at great risk of themselves were helping the protesters flee. Um, and then this is the perhaps the most important factory in China, and um, the Communist Party had a lot of incentive to fix the situation. So they came up with some fixes, which created even more problems, which we saw about a week ago and uh, have continued. So right now, the, we have sort of lost focus on Zhengzhou because of all the problems throughout China. 
but I don't think that the party solution is really a long-term one. And as I mentioned, it caused additional protests last week. How much of a rallying point is Jimmy Lai? Uh, people in Hong Kong know of Jimmy Lai, um, but Hong Kong is actually under, is there's less freedom of thought, uh, room for freedom of thought in Hong Kong. So um, he's a silent reminder. People in the mainland generally don't know of him. So he's not a rallying point for the people that, you know, have been in the news recently. How much? So, so then, how much does uh, what happened at Tiananmen Square inform what's happening now? I mean, uh, there has to be obviously. There's a lot of people who lived through Tiananmen Square still in the mainland. But, but, but is this ju- is this sui generis? This white paper protest, or does it have linkages back to protests of yore? I think it is um, on its own. Um, I. People, a lot of people in in China um, who were, let's say, born after 1989 uh, or were young at 1989 don't really know what happened um, because the Communist Party has been spectacular uh, in scrubbing the knowledge of it. And and this is fascinating because you've got a situation where Deng Xiaoping, the leader at the time, wanted the Chinese people to know that he was willing to kill in great numbers. But his uh, successors have been embarrassed by it. So they've erased that lesson and perhaps to their detriment because people in China now don't have they may hate the Communist Party, but they don't know how uh, malicious it can be. And and but but they it's it's interesting. I mean, and it speaks to sort of this um, intrinsic desire of human beings to live freely that they, they, you know, they've been gaslit. They've been prevented from understanding their own history, as you say. And boy, that, some of that's going on in this country, too, by the way. But, but yet they're still chanting freedom on the streets of Shanghai and elsewhere. That's such a fascinating commentary on, hum, on humanity, isn't it? Yes. Um, unfortunately, people aren't chanting freedom in the White House press room yeah. um, or in the Oval yeah. Office. Um, because uh, President Biden's statement and the comments of uh, the press secretary, as you just uh, uh, played, and, and also John Kirby, the NSC uh, coordinator uh, a couple of days ago, these really are um, not the best of America. And I think people will remember this, because if the United States is not a beacon of freedom and democracy, if we don't push our own ideals, nobody else will. And when we don't speak clearly and support our ideals, everybody in the world noticed, including the Chinese, and the Chinese then pushed back. So the Biden administration, hoping not to anger China, is actually engaging in um, a position which is undermining our not only our freedom, but also our security. He is Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. Follow him on Twitter, Gordon G. Chang, C-H-A-N-G, Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. Gordon Chang, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Dan and Amy. I appreciate it. Thank you. And you can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang, as Dan just mentioned. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer.
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, we expect uh, remarks from Fed Chairman Jay Powell, the chief mystic today, uh, in advance of November jobs report on Friday. You have uh, no less than Elon Musk calling on Powell to move in the direction of cutting rates, not a 50 basis point increase as anticipated later this month, but to cut interest rates to avoid a severe recession. That's what Mr. Twitter has to say. What does Mr. Moore have to say? Steve Moore joins us now, Godzilla author and economist. Steve? Are you with Elon Musk? <laughs> Good morning, guys. By the way, I don't know if you all saw the Babylon B uh, item on inflation the other day, but it was very, very funny where it had, you know, tw- you know, all these banners. Take advantage of the new, you know, Black Friday, uh, you know, sales all over the country. Yeah. We're lowering prices to the prices they were before Biden was president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Very, very funny. Um Look, I believe that the most important thing to do to reduce inflation is not in the hands of the Fed. Uh, I think, Dan and Amy, that the the job to reduce inflation now is with Congress. In term, the most important thing to do is for the Congress to radically, dramatically take a chainsaw to the federal budget and cut government spending because the government spending, the trillions and trillions of dollars that have been spent post during COVID and post COVID, you know, the trillion and a half dollars we spent, you know, in 2020 when Trump was president, when the economy got shut down and then Biden comes in and spends another $4 trillion. It was helicopter money. It was just money dumped out of, you know, the windows of helicopters. It was all printed. It was all debt. And if you're going to spend that much money at the government level, you're going to have inflation. So I believe the most important thing is not for the Fed to be raising or cutting interest rates. It is to dramatically, dramatically cut government spending, at least by a trillion dollars. We'll see if the Republicans have the backbone to do that. Uh, Well, do you have any more comment on what's actually going to happen since that may or may not happen? (laughs) But we know that we know that Jay Powell is going to do something with interest rates before the month is out. Yeah, he's going to cut rates again. Uh, raise rates. Basis. Raise rates. Again. I'm, I'm sorry. Ra- raise rates by. Sorry about that. Yeah. Ra- raise rates by about, you know, 50 to 75 basis points. Um, and uh, look, inflation is coming down, but it's not coming down nearly fast enough. So I believe in the next few months we'll see inflation at five to six percent, which is a big improvement over an eight to nine percent. But as you guys know, we should be, you know, somewhere between zero and two percent inflation, not you know, four, five, six, seven, eight percent inflation. So there's still a long way to go to stabilize prices. And um, my point is, I don't care how much the Fed raises rates. If you have continued spending binge, uh, you're not going to get that inflation under control. And so here's the problem, uh, Dan and Amy. I mean, think about this. If we do go into recession in 2023, and I don't think that's baked into a cake, but a lot of economists think we are, and and obviously uh, Elon Musk thinks we're headed towards a recession. If we are in a recession, then what's Congress and the Biden administration going to do? Are they going to spend another trillion dollars, Dan? Are they just going to keep dumping all of this government spending and debt into the economy? I mean, it's a recipe for economic catastrophe. Well, how how, uh, how stout of heart on spending do you expect Kevin McCarthy to be? He's yeah. made all the right statements pre- so far, but I don't know. 
I don't know either. I mean, I can't make promises to your listeners that the Republicans are going to turn into fiscal saints. But, you know, there's a big deal, by the way. This is something I wanted to give you guys an alert for you and your listeners. So, you know, the Republic, did you know the Republicans can can automatically cut about one hundred and twenty five billion dollars out of the budget this year by doing nothing? Now you're probably thinking, what what is Steve what Moore, uh, smoking? By Here's what they thing. can do. What? There there is something called a, a pay as you go rule, and mm. there are there are spending limitations, and this is a rule that goes back ten years. And all the Republicans have to do is just not waive the budget rules, and automatic cuts happen, and we save 160 billion dollars. Don't just do something. Stand there. Yeah, well, that seems right. so simple. Exactly. Why aren't they all doing they it? Do and it's, it would take 60 votes in the Senate to suspend these budget rules. And unfortunately, we've got to put pressure on these Republican senators because it looks like Biden might be able to get 10, 12, 15 Republicans. Senators. No, we can't do that. We can't cut any spending programs. So that would be a bad sign. You know, I mean, come on. You can't cut $150 billion out of a $6 trillion budget when we had over $150 billion of fraud in the unemployment insurance program. I've got an idea. Here's a way to save $40, $50 billion. Don't give uh, the IRS all this money to hire 80,000 more agents. How about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable how difficult all these fiscal conservatives have in exercising anything resembling fiscal conservatism. Right, right. I mean, look, they're politicians. I hate to tell you folks this, but, you know, uh, politicians, whether they have an R or a D next to their name, unless they're somebody like Rand Paul, you know, they, uh, they like to play Santa Claus. They'd much rather give away money than take it away. All right, let's move over to the housing market because uh, Daily Wire came out with this, that home buyers have to earn six figures to afford the median-priced homes because yep. prices skyrocketed yep. skyrocketed by 45% since the same time last year. So what's a homeowner or somebody who wants to purchase a home to do and somebody who wants to get yeah. a new car or a used car because it's not even worth it with a car loan, but the interest rates on the car loan payments? Yeah, so mortgage rates have reached close to 7%. I think they fell a little bit below 7% in the last uh a couple of weeks, but you know they were three percent when Trump left office. So those higher mortgage rates are really escalating the cost of buying a new house. Now I've got to. So I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer today, okay, folks. But but uh, you know I mean? But here's the thing: Did you see that the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the FHA are? I mean Fannie and Freddie, which are the federal mortgage insurers, they are now going to allow federal mortgage insurance. You ready for this on homes? of a mortgage of more than a million dollars. Now, love Dan, it. how many... I, lo- I love, I love getting subsidized by, uh, you know, the uh, those that are making 50 and 60 and 70 grand a year. <laughs> exactly. Right? Well, exactly. I mean, here's the thing. How many people in this country can, can afford... Can a middle-class person can afford to buy a million-dollar home? How many first-time home buyers buy a million-dollar home? Come on. Hey, look, Steve, Steve, look. The housing industry. Look, if they're going to finance, if they're going to underwrite, subsidize my Tesla, they might as well subsidize my house, too. <laughs> but, but right? A million dollars. No, guys, isn't that I mean, fair? The, you're right about this. Now, here's the thing. I mean, this is how out of control Washington is. So do you remember way, 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 way back in 2007 and 2008 what, what happened to the housing market? Yes. And do you remember, Dan and Amy, that the, all the all the people, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all the housing industry, oh, it's a one in a million chance that the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will lose money. Remember? A one in a million dollars, one in a million uh, chance that, that they would ever go bankrupt. Guess what? They went bankrupt. And guess who bailed them out? 
you and me and everybody else. Now here they are. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like everybody in Washington has financial amnesia or something. So now here they're back with their old bag of tricks. They're I got an idea. Another housing bubble. I got an idea. The Biden administration should move to recall Barney Frank and make him the housing czar. <laughs> exactly. How about that? That's right. Yeah, he was the one who said, I'll never go bankrupt. What are you <laughs> talking about, you fear mongers? Because I was working at the Wall Street Journal at that time. We were warning month after month after month, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are out of control. And it's unbelievable. Here we are 14 months, 14 years later, doing exactly the same thing. We should have privatized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We don't need the government more insuring mortgages. And the only reason we do that Dan and Amy, you know the reason we do that is because you've got an incredibly powerful housing lobby in Washington. The mortgage bankers, the realtors, the uh, you know the home builders, and they're all in for this. They love these subsidies, but the last time we did it, it crashed the economy. Hey, I, I don't. Uh, maybe you can explain this to me too. I don't know what's going on here. I, I know that Biden has declared he's going to be the most pro labor union president in American history. <laughs> But now there's this uh, railroad strike looming, and it's like he's uh, moving to have Congress prevent the railroad workers from striking if they want to. Yeah, and so now he wants Congress to act, to intervene. And by the way, this is really strange. I'm scratching my head right now because I seem to recall back, what, eight weeks ago, he had a big press conference in the Rose Garden saying, we've solved the strike. We have a solution here. Hooray. We, you know, mission accomplished. Right. Now, here mission we are. accomplished. The, the strike is right upon us. He wants Congress to act, to intervene. And I don't know. I'm of mixed mind on this one. I don't, you know, I don't want to see a rail strike because it will cause a lot of problems. But look, you know, these real rail workers have a case. I mean, Biden inflation is causing everybody's cost of living to go through the roof. They want a, what, a 24 percent increase in their wages and salaries, which in normal times would be a lot. But if you got eight or nine percent inflation, a three year contract at 24 percent increase is just keeping up with inflation. So I think Marco Rubio had it, had it right. We're not you know, let's let the company and the and the workers figure this one out. Why should we take the side of the rail companies in this one? But, but or, right. or the I mean, or the workers. Right. Wait a second. Wait a second. You know, I mean, wait. I thought I thought uh, we believe in collective bargaining rights. If they have a contract that provides <laughs> exactly. a right to strike, then that's between the uh, union and the employer. Yeah. So the, if the Congress intervened, they would impose this salary uh, on the workers. And you know, look again. I'm of mixed mind because I don't want. I think a rail strike would be you know da- extremely damaging to the economy. But on the other hand. You know, don't we believe in the free market? And as you said, don't we believe that, you know, workers have the right to collectively bargain? And this this basically undermines that right. Yes, Steve Moore, economist and Govzilla author. Steve, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Okay, guys, I'm going to go out and get shopping. I've got those, you know, no more Biden inflation. Yeah, the pre-Biden pre prices, yeah. <laughs> See you guys. Right. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Revisiting the topic of uh, so-called COVID amnesty on this 
Free Speech Wednesday, as we've dubbed it, um, telling stories to remind us all of the incidents of man's inhumanity to man during COVID that yeah. continue. And People by the got way, divorced. Uh, then get what? People got divorced during COVID because there were such differing opinions on mask wearing and, and vaccinations. Friendships were lost over it. So were lives. Yes. Uh, and um, again, who is it that's proposing, proposing COVID amnesty? The perpetrators of so much of man's inhumanity to man. Those who sought and continue to seek to squelch dissent, to ignore science and data as they pontificate about what slaves they are to science and data. This story comes to us uh, from Justin Hart's Substack, as told by a guest poster named Megan Mansell. Franca Penatoni was born on November 3rd, 1973, and she died on April 6th of 2020. Uh, her uh, tragic demise began on March 28th of 2020 with a fever and a cough. Reading from Megan Manzel's post, mm -hmm. she was a vibrant, spirited, 46-year-old woman who had a passion for going to church and singing, was close in with her family, and was largely nonverbal with Down syndrome. She loved the color purple. Franca's sister, Maria, who served as her health care surrogate, was with her during the fateful emergency room visit, as Franca was unable to advocate for herself or understand medical terminology. The first doctor they saw told Maria, Franca's sister, she would be able to stay alongside Franca, but once Franca was admitted and transferred to a different part of the hospital, a temperamental charge nurse told Maria she was not allowed to be there, going so far as walking her to her car. Maria was denied entrance in spite of identifying herself as Franca's healthcare surrogate and was told that her presence as Franca's advocate was against hospital policy. She said if it was she said it was as if her sister had been taken. Maria did. But what came next was both unexpected, inhumane, and a disgusting abuse of power that resulted in a heinous act against a defenseless woman that cannot be undone. Franca did not know the masked strangers or understand how to make medical decisions for herself. She became frustrated and then was restrained. Her family was not told of the progress of her ailing health. They were denied hospital access that left defenseless and left defenseless as Franco writhed in bed restraints without access to disability rights, medical advocacy, or her family, who had legal authority over her well-being. She became a prisoner who had committed no crime. The family received a mere five phone calls from doctors during the duration of Franca's stay. They were told she was getting fluids and that her fever wasn't breaking. She was given the phone once over the first two days. She was tired, was on a lot of medication, spoke very little in general, so it was a brief call. Franca's family wondered whether the hospital used a similarly inadequate form of communication with their deaf patients. The family then told she was being treated for sepsis, uh -oh. but Frank, Franca spoke in short sentences with limited vocabulary and was incapable of understanding what this meant or which treatment options were available. It took two days before an infectious disease doctor contacted the family, during which time Franca had no contact with the outside world. 
Franca was strapped to a bed for 10 days in the custody of total strangers who were touching her, changing her, and feeding her while she was utterly helpless and unable to understand what was happening. Family members from all over the country were trying to reach the hospital to contact her or get updates with no success. The doctor who finally touched base said she had a bad case of pneumonia. A COVID test was done on March 29th with test results received April 1, but the family wasn't notified of the positive test until April 2nd. Franca was denied uh, hydroxychloroquine, family access, and representation as she lay dying alone and scared in a strange place surrounded by strangers. And strapped to her bed. Between April 2nd and April 6th of 2020, April 6th is when she died, the family received little communication back from the hospital, and although they requested a patient advocate from the hospital, not one was not provided. Franca reportedly became jumpy and anxious, behavior that was unusual for her before hospitalization. She was in a room completely by herself. The family was not told that she was restrained. They only learned that after her death when they reviewed her medical chart. The family was not told she had been put on a ventilator until seven hours after the fact. And they were not told she had been put on life support, nor did they consent as they wanted a DNR. Do not resuscitate. Right. Her family was told on the day of her death that they could be physically present with her as she died if they would sign the DNR. So they verbally agreed, but they were still not allowed to be with her. What? They watched her die via FaceTime on an iPad. Oh, stop. Uh, it's too much. <laughs> Honestly, it's, I can't hear it anymore. Megan Mansell concludes the story of uh, Franca by asking the question, how many hospital patients have died like Franca? How many died like Franca today? Will we ever know? Megan Mansell, by the way, is a um, uh, former district education director over special populations, serving students who are disabled, Im immunocompromised, undocumented, autistic, behaviorally challenged, and so forth. So um, she's on the front lines yeah. of serving people with disabilities, and she... And so you know, that was the impetus for her to tell Frank a story. So um, about this amnesty. Yeah, this amnesty you, request. you requested. Yeah. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, I know people want to move on. I mean, unless you're, you know, in China um, or the Chicago public school system, you know. Potato, potato. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree with Justin Hart, and I agree with Megan Mansell and so many others that, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to move on. I think uh, we're going to try and tell as many stories, uh, of, that as many of the stories as Franca's as we are made aware of. Oh. Because if you don't want to go down this path again, a path that you see and hear from the public health establishment and the COVIDian political class, then you better tell these stories. And it's sort of the conversation we had earlier about um, Robin Keller, the lawyer, 44-year uh, career as a lawyer who was uh, ash-canned by her firm 
for daring to disagree with the prevailing wisdom on the Dobbs decision. So if you're not going to stand for stand up with uh, Robin Keller in a corporate environment, uh, and if you're not going to stand up with with and for Franca and her family in the context of what we allowed to be done to each other during COVID, well, then you're just not going to live as a free person. And you know what? I want to live as a free person. Mm-hmm. I do too. I, I my, One of my childhood friends, her brother had COVID. And he was in the Northwest suburbs. They wouldn't let him see him. Nobody could go in. And this whole thing, she goes, you know, people say nurses are heroes. The nurse that w- was with assigned to him was so rude. She only let them FaceTime. It wasn't FaceTiming every day. It was every third day. If they're lucky, they just were on her beck and call. Okay, well, no, that's her so we could see our brother. They wouldn't let him in the hospital, and he died alone. No, you, they're not going to be. There's no amnesty. No. As we've said many times during all this hero talk, Heroes. you are not a hero because of you the profession in which you work. You're a hero or not based on your individual conduct. There's nothing heroic about what these public health professionals did to Franca. Uh, again, not not a story that um, we haven't heard before of people not being able to see their elderly parents. They watch them die in a nursing home from outside, from outside, like press their face press against a window. If they were even lucky to get that position. A 46-year-old woman with Down syndrome and uh, somebody so integral to the family as you're hearing from the family and and as evidenced by the efforts they made and they watch her die on an app on an iphone could you imagine Uh, horrifying just the it's so inhumane everyone just lost touch about emotions and empathy saving lives it's a great they're, they're doing some work to a greater cause as if they were in a cult there is a nurse in Missouri that I know that did let people sneak in the back. They had to wear the Tyvek full body suits, but she let them be with their dad when he died. Saving I think lives. She might be a hero. Saving lives is what we're told. That's what everybody was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I just saw uh, a HHS 15 second snippet that uh, the Secretary Becerra posted on Twitter. Uh, nine in 10. Nine out of 10 COVID deaths are people over the age of 50. Nine out of 10 COVID deaths are people over the age of 50, and it shows pictures of people over the age of 50. So go get your jab. Every two months, by the way. Oh, now it's every two months. Okay. That's what he said. Every two months. That was in his tweet. But nine of 10 were over the age of 50. Really? So knowing what you know now, explain to me the vax mandates for K-12 through or college, the masks, and so on and so forth. Vax mandates to go to Notre Dame. Or Yale. Or, yeah, there's a whole list of schools. For the students, but not for the faculty that's over right. 50. Yeah. And they're tell the ones ag- that they need to be protected. A tell, lot me again, tell me again how this is all about saving lives. It's all about power and control instead of safety and health. I, I'm supposed to genuflect before these doctors' associations and nurses' associations. Uh, individual doctors, individual nurses, that's a separate conversation. But I'm talking about the power structure. Talking about the government public health combine that includes academia, of course. 
I'm talking about Ashish Jha standing at a podium telling us that if if you get vaxxed, they can prevent every single COVID death without any consideration, much less any addressing of all of these unexplained deaths associated associated with uh, myocarditis or evidence of some sort of adverse reaction to the vax. I'm talking about this kind of treatment and, frankly, no reckoning for the fact, what, what do we know, what do we learn? And I understand what we didn't know and people trying to do their best. I understand that. But you can't lose your humanity. And in this situation with Franca, forget about it. Indefensible. But one of the things, she was put on a ventilator. What did we learn relatively early on? That that's a, that's a death sentence. That's mm-hmm. the last thing you should be doing. Right. These people, right. they're going to have to now answer this was, to a higher calling. Now, now yeah, well, now, now, again, Franca, this is very early on in the pandemic. So I'll give the medical professionals there in terms of the treatment I'll give them some birth, but restraining a developmentally disabled nonverbal woman for 10 days where without without access to her family, one call to her family, without allowing her uh, the, the legal guardian in terms of her health decisions to be there with her if she wanted to be there with her. Forget it. No way. Lisa and Itasca, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi. Um, no, I just, I just like have some um, people that I know that like the same, had the same stories, and um, it's just sad that um, this went on. And like you said in the beginning of the of it, you know, people didn't know, and they were doing what they thought, but. To like not be able to give people ivermectin if they wanted it, or not be able to see people and be on FaceTime, um, it's just horrible. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of other stories out there. Thanks for the call, Lisa. Uh, Deborah in Arlington Heights. Yeah, my sister went in the hospital on New Year's Eve this past year, um, and she fought hard because they wanted to put her on a ventilator, and she's older. Hmm. Um, she pushed back and and refused so they put her on high flow oxygen and then they wanted to give her remdesivir and she took that's a several treatment thing and she took one treatment and i was sending her messages like it causes kidney damage the worse the further you go into the treatments and our mom died from renal failure so she stopped that she didn't realize until somebody told her that they put a dnr on her file um, without her knowledge, and then she wanted it taken off. She survived. She was in there about a month, but she had to push back. She could never have her husband visit. Nobody could visit her. I couldn't even send her flowers. They pushed that back. She never was able to, like, see anybody in the entire time. And fortunately, she survived, and she's back to normal, but she went home on oxygen. But if she was not, like, conscious and constantly advocating for herself... God knows what would have happened to her because this is what happened with many people, and you'll never know because nobody was allowed to visit. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Deborah. Well, and again, in Frank's case, think about the family, and and this is recounted in the piece I was referencing, and all the unanswered questions and all the recriminations. I, 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 if, uh, 
that was a family member of mine, uh, I would be in prison. Yeah, because you'd storm the hospital. Tim in Zion. Yeah, this is a very sensitive subject for me because my mother-in-law was, I don't think she even wanted to be in a nursing home. We couldn't get in to see her. She died of a heart issue, not from COVID. And we weren't even home when it happened. We had to come back from a vacation we were on because it was so sudden and so... I'm sorry, I'm just broke up oh, about it, but Tim. it's just a, just a sad thing, you know, that they were locked into these places. And when we were able to visit, we had to see her through a window or we had to see her through like a door. You know, it was just it was just a mess. And I just don't believe in this whole COVID thing anyways, that they need to do this stuff to these people in these nursing homes. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks for the call, Tim. Appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah. And, sorry uh, for your loss. And, and also, too, you know, thinking about that and Tim's mother-in-law dying from a heart issue, not COVID, but then that implicates one of the other issues we spent a lot of time talking about, the opportunity cost. All hands on deck, all resources, COVID-focused, to the exclusion of other ailments. And what's the story out of Europe last week? cancer epidemic in the eurozone 100 million screenings missed maybe a, as many as a million uh cancer diagnoses thus missed because of the lack of people getting their regular screenings and so forth chuck and delavan yeah hey, uh, just one kid was working for me he was 28 years old he worked on my farm the day before uh he died he went Left my farm, went out, got a burger, was walking home because he didn't want a DUI. And he turns around and somebody loses control of their car, hits him, and breaks his neck. He's in the hospital. The next day they disconnect him. They would not let the family go and see him and say goodbye to him. And when he was finally dead, died immediately, they marked him down as a COVID death. And I told him, I said, you go. I told his brother, you go to the hospital and you demand them to take that off of there. He died of a broken neck. And because the hospitals were getting extra money for calling him COVID death, they said, oh, no, we tested him, and he tested positive for COVID. He died of a broken neck. That's what he died of, or gotten hit by a car. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Chuck. Dan and Amy. After story of that. Yeah, Yeah. and we're going to keep telling them. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I mentioned it uh, before Mike Scott's newscast in our previous discussion on COVID. We've gone from... Two weeks to stop the spread and everything the public health professionals were wrong about over the last three years to the declaration from Dr. Ashish Jha, former dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, now Fauci 2.0, that they can eliminate all COVID deaths. So in case you thought their error rate would have engendered some humility, uh, you'd be wrong. 
You'd be wrong. And they're worried this morning that, you know, Twitter has gotten rid of COVID misinformation and there's 11,000 plus people that, you know, they took off Twitter. They're worried now that these people are going to lead to less vaccinations because misinformation about COVID and the vaccinations are now allowed on Twitter. Yeah, well, the um, break. the vaccine zeitgeist dissipated well before Elon Musk took over Twitter, as evidenced by the percentage of Americans who are lining up for the bivalent booster. I've lost count of where we're at, but I know, as I mentioned, that uh, uh, Becerra, the HHS secretary, is telling people over 50 on Twitter, ironically, every two months. Mm-hmm. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Dr. Joel Zinberg, Competitive Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow and Director of Public Health and American Wellbeing Initiative at Paragon Health Institute. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. My pleasure. So um, Dr. Ashish Jha says follow orders and we'll, we'll, we'll do what uh, President Xi across the uh, uh, across the world in China says, which is we'll get to zero COVID, at least zero COVID deaths. Well, you know, he, he's very uh, upbeat and, you know, a real cheerleader. He announced a six-week sprint uh, to convince uh, Americans to get these new updated bivalent vaccines. Uh, the problem is, you know, no one wants them. Uh, the uh, the they were authorized at the end of August, and immediately the Biden administration announced it was going to buy 160 million, excuse me, 170 million doses. Um, and the fact is, since then, uh, roughly about 11, 12 percent of the population, and only about 15, 16 percent of the 227 million people who've completed the primary vaccine series and are eligible for the new booster have taken it since it was authorized. So, you know, you you can proceed as you like and, and sound like, you know, you're in a high school musical, but the fact is, unless you do something or you acknowledge why do people take vaccines, they're not going to take them. And this is just, you know, turning into a big waste of money. And now they're doubling down because they've decided they're going to take $475 million from a different COVID relief uh package a different you know for a different purpose and they're going to you know try to do this this sprint you know they're going to have something called can't wait a bunch of an ad campaign and this follows weeks and months of a different ad campaign called we can do this and why they think it's going to be any different now is sort of beyond me well do these doses expire at some point in time oh yeah they do expire and the fact is we know uh that between uh December, excuse me, December of 2020 and mid-May of 2022, the U.S. wasted over 82 million doses of the original vaccine, you know, because you have the government going out and buying it and and distributing it as opposed to allowing a market to work where, you know, there's there's a price system that sends signals to the suppliers and and from the uh, people who are demanding it. and, And you don't have that system at work now so just whatever you know some bureaucrat in washington thinks is the appropriate thing is what we're buying and it's it's kind of like the field of dreams if you buy it they will come 
Mm-hmm. Well, nobody's coming. If you buy it, pharma will continue to come, especially around election time. I wonder if that has anything to do with uh, continuing uh, I don't to know. I think the, feather I think bed, this, Pfizer, Moderna. No, I, I think this is just a, a matter of the, you know, it's, it's not something confined to vaccine purchases. This is an administration that has a philosophy that they know yeah. better. Right. Than what than than anyone else, and particularly than the American people. So they're going to buy it, uh, and and hope that people come. But they're not going to come unless the people perceive a risk, which they don't now because COVID cases, ER visits, and hospitalizations peaked three months ago, and they've been down uh, since then. Deaths have been down even longer. They're not going to use the vaccine unless they perceive there's a benefit. And unfortunately, what's happened with the newer uh, viral variants is that there's little or no benefit in terms of I- interfering with in- infection and transmission from the vaccines. Uh, and, and they're not going to use vaccines when you've undermined public trust for the last few years by issuing confusing and contradictory messages. And you know, just look at the CDC. I think they I think they need to be get uh, go back to being more imperious and less friendly, like Ashish Jha. More, you know, if it saves one life and if you don't follow orders, then you're killing grandma and grandpa. So tell 85 percent of the country now that's not uh, lining up for the bivalent booster that uh, they're going to kill grandma and grandpa. And, you know, maybe that'll get people in line. Well, the problem the problem is they can't say that with a straight face anymore. In other words, when the vaccine first came out, there was data indicating it interfered with transmission. So you could make the argument that you need to take the vaccine because when you take the vaccine, it keeps you from getting infected and passing it on to someone else. You can't make that argument anymore. You know, thankfully, the vaccines still appear to be effective in keeping you from getting seriously ill, but they don't keep you from getting infected and possibly passing it on to someone else. So do you think that since they purchased these, you know, millions of doses, is that why they're pushing this and having some mandates in certain school districts saying if you're not vaccinated or certain universities, if you're not vaccinated, you can't go to school? Well, look, those mandates have been in place for quite a while now, and they date back to the original vaccines. So I, I think they they have not, unfortunately, been keeping up with the science, as they like to say, uh, because the science has changed with the newer variants. The effectiveness in interfering with transmission is way down from where it was originally. So there's no you know, rationale anymore for these mandates. Are you telling us, are you trying to tell us that the hoi polloi knows more than our betters at Notre Dame or Yale? That can't be right. Well, look, the hoi, I would urge the hoi polloi, as you turn them, <laughs> to be vaccinated. It, it, it protects you, you know, from getting seriously ill and dying. But I feel very differently about the government mandating it or the government telling you you have to do it or the government wasting, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars buying millions of vaccine doses that are going to be wasted. And and these, you know, cute sounding ad campaigns. Well, what helped with their ad campaign is if there was, you know, an increase of cases after families gathered for Thanksgiving. I think they're foaming at the mouth. They want this to happen. Well, look, that's pretty cynical, but you might be right. <laughs> well, the the other thing, too, of going back to Becerra, I mentioned his, his the ad that he posted featuring uh, seniors mainly, pictures of seniors to go get their jabs. Uh, with the statistic, nine of 10 COVID deaths are people over the age of 50. Oh. 
So now we have an acknowledgement uh, that we didn't have for years that COVID affects people in different age groups and, of course, associated underlying comorbidities differently. So they're not they're not making that concession, but it's it's embedded in that statistic they're banding about. Yeah, I mean, look, after after years of uh, criticizing and ostracizing the people who were behind, you know, the very highly respected people behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which proposed what's called focus protection, focusing your efforts on the people who are most vulnerable, namely the elderly and people with underlying medical conditions, you know, they're finally kind of acknowledging what everyone else has known for for quite a while, that these are the folks who need uh, to get protected. And the best protection you can do for yourself is get vaccinated if you're in one of those groups. Something else I I read recently, uh, revelatory, this from the uh, Washington Post, speaking of our betters, uh, story about uh, China and zero COVID, quoting the Washington Post, A coronavirus outbreak on the verge of being China's biggest of the pandemic has exposed a critical flaw in Beijing's zero-COVID strategy, a vast population without natural immunity. Mm -hmm. Wait a second. Well, not just just that vast population with no immunity, but the the people who got vaccinated used the Sinovac vaccine, which is, you know, by many accounts, inferior to all the vaccines – that came out in the West, particularly the mRNA vaccines, because they wanted for nationalist reasons to show that the Chinese vaccine was good. And in fact, it isn't. So not only do you not have the natural immunity, but you don't even the people who got vaccinated don't have their immunity. Well, but but, but I thought I didn't know natural immunity was a thing. Well, when did natural immunity become a thing? Well, look, I, I, you know, there are still people, unfortunately, who won't acknowledge that. But uh, but, you know, finally, I guess the Washington Post is coming around. And by the way, if, if you want some, you know, I hope you guys are sitting down. But the Washington Post recently declared that COVID is no longer mainly a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is that right? Really? <laughs> I missed correct. that headline. When was that? When was that well, declaration you, you, made? I have I have a link to that in my the piece I published in the uh, New York Post about these issues back uh, November 25th. You can go there and, and get the link. But it's really kind of hard to believe. But they finally come around and, and they were even telling the truth now and then. Wow. Yeah, that is that is a real breath of fresh air. Um, hmm. So so uh, just trying to get a sense of where we're at, because here in Illinois, um, we're still under an emergency order. We still have a, uh, a yep. COVID uh, five alarmer in Illinois, at least according to our governor. So, and and apparently uh, Joe Biden agrees because they're still doing the same deal at the federal level. So that's just for, that's just for cash and prizes. Uh, do we all acknowledge that now too? Well, no. I think you know part of the extension, uh, and and the administration has indicated they're going to extend the public health emergency up. Uh, it was originally uh, going to expire in January. Now it's uh, slated to expire in April of 2023. Uh, you know, part of that is it, 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 there are all kinds of flexibilities and authorities that the government gains by keeping an emergency in place. Mm-hmm. And one of them, uh, an important one, if you if you're in a Biden administration and you want to expand government. Uh, run health care is that states cannot remove people who are ineligible 
from the Medicaid rolls as long as the public health emergency is in effect. Mm -hmm. So you've had over the the last few years uh, about 15, 16 million people who are ineligible have accumulated on the rolls. You've seen an explosion in Medicaid coverage. Uh, once Once that emergency ends, Uh, those folks, the states are going to have to go through the arduous task of, you know, redetermining who's eligible and who's not and and taking these millions of people off the rolls. But if if you're a person who thinks government-run health care is the be-all and end-all, you don't want that to happen. Well, and here in Illinois, if you're a teacher and you get COVID and you're not at school, you can't get it counted as a sick day. It's free time off as long as our emergency order is in place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a consistency here that that these things will help you know extend government control over health care and this is something we ought to be very concerned about and unfortunately it's something that uh, you know I, I recently wrote uh, an article in national review talking about this how you know elections have consequences so now that you know the senate has remained uh in democratic hands the 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 most important figure in the Senate is going to be Bernie Sanders. And you know Bernie Sanders, who's been a big fan of Medicare for All, which is a complete takeover of the health system by the federal government. He's not going to – he's not interested in, in doing anything that's going to limit you know, the Medicaid expansion. Dr. Joel Zinberg, Competitive Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow and Director of the Public Health and American Wellbeing Initiative at Paragon Health Institute. Dr. Zinberg, thanks as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, then. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.